Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. You know, we're in the studio here. We just recorded an episode on yoga and the benefits of yoga, the risk of yoga, a lot of the science that we find in yoga. And in that episode, we refer out to an additional episode, which we are recording now, uh, Yoga Sex Magic, because there is a, there's a lot to be said about, about sex and yoga, about the sensual side of yoga, the sexual benefits of yoga, and its roots in mysticism and uh, sensual experience. And don't worry, we're not going to talk about Sting's sex life here, um, <laughs> because he has often talked about tantric yoga, right? Yeah. As being a part of uh, his... Uh, deal. Yeah. Deal, yeah. yeah. I was going to say magic sauce, but that just doesn't sound right. Um, but we are going to talk about, I guess some people would say it's yoga's dirty little secret, but the fact of the matter is is that it has its roots in tantric Yoga, which is associated with sexuality, as you say, and celebrating sexuality and uh, and a lot of mysticism too. Yeah. So let's uh, let's 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 run back the clock here. Uh, let's uh, let's discuss ancient history. Um, so Hindu- Hinduism is the oldest of the dominant world religions today, and arguably the most difficult to summarize. Okay. The roots of Hinduism stretch back a good 5,000 years uh, through the soil of human history. And that's uh, soil that's just ripe with variations, uh, with uh, with different important texts, uh, poetic epics, sects, uh, diversions, uh, gods, goddesses, religious rituals. It's just there. there is an entire rich culture there um, around Hinduism. And any attempts to summarize it here would be in- incomplete. Uh, it would be a podcast unto itself. Yeah. But uh, at, at its very nature, what does it propose to do? It aims to free the practitioner of Hinduism from something called the wheel of samsara. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've mentioned this before in terms of Buddhism. Uh, and, of course, there's a lot of crossover between Hinduism and right. Buddhism. Samsara is the endless cycle of death and rebirth that sees the, the human... Um, consciousness or soul flow and rise and fall through varieties of tragic doomed and ephemeral lives it's the idea that it, it's not this sort of vague western idea of of reincarnation where it's like oh i'm not really going to die i'm going to come back as a cat or something that'll be great and i'm not saying don't find some comfort in that thought mm-hmm. but uh the idea of samsara is more that i'm going to continue to live lives that are ultimately going to be filled with pain uh, in one way, shape, or another, even though even the loftier, more pleasant lives that I live are going to end in death and may end up shooting me down to a lower level of existence. So I might be, uh, uh, and I'm borrowing more from the uh, uh, some of the Tibetan Buddhist ideas here, but uh, I might live life as a demigod in the next life and everything will be awesome, but I'll kind of be awful at the same time and earn myself a position in the lower hells in the life after that. So... The idea is that you want to eventually rid yourself of this wheel. You know, it's kind of it's like it's a karmic wheel, really. Yeah, it's kind of think of it this way: it's like the the person who's in one bad relationship after the other, and they desperately want to free themselves of that cycle and mm-hmm. find a good relationship. That's kind of what we have here, and in that good relationship, that liberation yeah. from the wheel of samsara, is what Hindus call moksha, which means release or liberation. So. This carnival ride sucks. I want to get off of it. That's what <laughs> that's what Hinduism is ultimately trying to do. Um, and we might not do it in this lifetime or the next. Um, 
but we need a we need a game plan, right? So we get into something called Trimarga, which is the three paths. So we have Karma Marga, the way of action, Jnana Marga, the way of knowledge, and uh, Bhakti Marga, the way of devotion. So this is where yoga gets in, involved here. Yoga means discipline uh, or regime or yoke, and, and it derives from the Sanskrit root for yoke. Yoke, which also means union. Yes. And we talked about this in the other podcast, this union between mind and body. Yeah. the You know, to use the centaur example again, instead of a mind riding the body, this man riding the horse, it is the man horse. It is the body uh the, the body-mind union. And this is where that intermingling of sexuality and spirituality happens as well. This is the same sort of yoke, and this is where we're really sort of driving the path toward tantra, right? Right. So within Hinduism, the word yoga is often used interchangeably with marga. It uh, involves far more than just poses. It, may, it includes meditation, fasting, uh, various aesthetic practices, ethical behavior, um, you know, intense study in, in some cases. And, um, and it's one of the six uh, schools of orthodox philosophy and often just sort of a generic term for spiritual discipline. So uh, just culturally, when you look at yoga in the East versus yoga in the West, there's there, there are a number of differences that, that arise. So let's talk a little about yoga in the past, because to really get into the Tantra thing, we have to, again, get into examples of, of what is the, the yogi of uh, 300 years ago like versus the yogi that you might yeah. find, uh, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, I mean, even like in the 1830s, um, Broad, William J. Broad, who wrote The Science of Yoga, brings up Ramakrishna. And uh, this was uh, one of Hinduism's, Hinduism's great modern saints. Um, there's this idea that he was always in such a constant state of ecstasy. And we say ecstasy, we are sort of making a little... Uh, uh, hat tip here to orgasm as well, mm-hmm. um, or at least a sense of transcendence. Um, um, le pit mort, as the French say, um, which is a little death, right? Transcendence. Yeah. And, and again, just to, to mention the body-mind connection. And when we're talking about body and mind in a religious context, you can think of it, you know, body and spirit. And so something intense that happens in the body, just by virtue of being intense, has to have a connection to the spirit as well. So it would seem obvious then that an orgasm would be of interest to someone seeking to understand the mind. And you think it's weird that we're saying orgasm when we're talking about religion or just even meditating or being in a state of ecstasy Mm -hmm. without um, some sort of, you know, slap and tickle involved. We're going to talk more about that. (laughs) Slap and tickle. Yeah, you know. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that later and and connect it all. But um, I did want to bring up Ramakrishna because apparently he was in such a constant state of bliss that he had assistants to tell him when to eat and breathe. Wow. Uh, So this is is intense stuff. There is this intermingling of these two concepts of sexuality and mysticism or... um, spirituality and in hinduism is this is not unusual um, we, we usually think about our more western religions and how these are mutually exclusive things but this is not in some eastern religions um and this is this idea too that the spiritual energy uh lies dormant at the base of the spine until it is activated and channeled upward to the brain to produce enlightenment through the chakras these uh, various uh Circles in the body mm-hmm. that um, uh, through which the energy flows. Right. So this state of ecstasy turns out to be a state of enlightenment. Yeah. So yogis in centuries past, uh, 
we, we mentioned this a little bit in the other podcast about yoga, but um, they might be holy men who would legitimately give you a little more insight into the spirit. Create uh, merkins out of their beards. Yeah, they might be mystic carnies who would bury themselves alive for money. They might contort their nude, ash-smeared bodies in the street. They might smoke dope and kidnap children. They might run protection rackets and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, some were capable of, of supposedly uniting the uh, male and female aspects of the universe through sexual sensation. So they really kind of ran the gambit from really holy to really uh, skeezy. I mean, it. I mean, th- that's one of the things that Broad really does a great job of, of pointing out is that yoga is, especially historically, is so much broader than what you would encounter at the YMCA or the local yoga studio. That it, it, it runs the the gambit between. Like just total enlightenment right. and madness between um, between physical uh, health and uh, debilitating or life threatening in- in- injury, and uh, and I mean it's just it's, it's, there's, there's a rich world there, and uh, and, uh, and and out of that also uh, comes this uh, this uh, subject of tantric yoga and, and tantra. Yeah, and I wanted to bring up um, Hatha Yoga, which we all, if you practice yoga, um, this is a branch of tantric yoga, and we'll talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about tantric yoga in a second. Um, but uh, the tantric agenda, again, was reaching enlightenment as fast as you could. And uh, William J. Broad brings up the fact that there's a 15th century book called Hatha Yoga Pratipika, and it instructs and poses, but also uh, talks about stimulating genitals, right? Again, in this this agenda to try to reach enlightenment. And one line from the book says, press the peri- uh, perineum. That's an erogenous area between uh, the genitals I and the anus, by the way. known as the, the taint in uh, some circles. Press the taint with the heel of the foot. Mm-hmm. It opens the doors of liberation. So I mean, these, this is a specific text telling people, you know, how to to proceed in this path of enlightenment, which has to do with sexuality. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, Hatha means violent, in, not in the sense that it is violent um, uh, yoga, in that it's like you know karate chops and stuff, but more the, about the speed and the intensity of getting there. Right. This is a path to this enlightenment yeah. again. So tantra. Um, Tantra. This, uh, Tell us about Tantra. This sexy side of yoga, but also the sexy roots of yoga. Um, it rises to prominence uh, within Hindu traditions in medieval India. This, this is around the 5th century uh, common era. But uh, its root, mysterious roots may go back even uh, even farther into the, the, the past, into the uh, practices and traditions of the Indus civilization, which would have been uh, uh, 3300 to 1300 B.C. So... Um, the idea here is that the beliefs were present in, in this earlier culture, then they go underground for thousands of years, and then they evolve back up into, uh, in, into practice um, in eastern and southern uh, India. And Tantra is based on the Sanskrit word meaning that which extends knowledge. And uh, it's the, the stated purpose of Tantra isn't sexual bliss in and of itself, or, but rather spiritual bliss and enlightenment, and ultimately uh, moksha that we were talking about early. Ultimately, right. the idea is to uh, find liberation from this endless wheel of suffering. And um, here's the other thing about Tantra, is that it does not subscribe to the caste system. Right. So, and, uh, and it was free then of the, the Brahmin priests that were ruling over it. It was open to men right. and women. It's Muslim. democratizing sexuality, but uh, also spirituality. So it had a lot of people who were very interested in being a part of it. Um, the the I guess you would say the problem um, 
or as William J. Broad puts it, is that eventually uh, it becomes so associated with uh, with sex that it's sort of overshadowed by this, and and people begin to think of it as okay, well, it's not just you know this spiritual awareness or enlightenment, but you know a lot of people are getting kind of randy here. Yeah. Now, and, and, and you know, squirreling away from the path. Yeah. Now, now, why are they getting randy, or what is the the stated reason? Well, historically, you had. Uh, right-handed tantra and you had left-handed tantra and uh and that doesn't have anything to do with uh like right or left-handed being bad or one being dirty that has to do with like the position of god and goddess Mm -hmm. um in a um in typical iconography but uh right-handed tantra was more traditional in in terms of like worshiping uh, the goddess uh whereas uh, left-handed tantra involved the ritual use of taboo items in Hinduism, uh, specifically these five M's. You had masma, which is meat, uh, natsya, I mean matsya, uh, fish, mudra, uh, parched grain, which was seen as an aphrodisiac, uh, maja, which is wine, and then mathuna, ritual sexual intercourse. So what you would have happen is you would have this, the, this group of uh, individuals and uh, and generally, these are people that already have some exposure to, to yoga uh, or to yoga principles. This is not just random people on the street. They come into a sacred space in the presence of um, you know some sort of a guru or an, or an adept, and it'll be an, on an auspicious day. You know that's something that lines up uh, uh, you know, numerologically important uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in the tradition. And you'll have male and female uh, participants uh, who were called uh, tantrikas. Uh, ritually bathe, dress, and generally, you know, doll up and purify through uh, meditation and uh, reciting mantras. And then they form into male and female couples. And then they uh, they consume these various things ritually. Have a little meat, a little fish, a little mm-hmm. parched grain, a little wine, and then they will uh, they will uh, unite sexually. I would I say, and say. then it becomes a key party. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I mean that can certainly that can be the 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 charge, but it's not just like all right, we're done with the. Um, we're done with the meat and the fish. Let's let's get down to business. There's also a lot of the, the mantras continue, mm-hmm. and the uh, the meditative aspects um, uh, continue, and um, and the and in fact, it's the pronunciation of the mantras uh, supposedly turns the female partner into an embodiment of the goddess, and the male becomes a an embodiment of of the god. So, on a mythic level, they're enacting the cosmological union of Shiva and Shatki, of Deva and Devi. And uh, it, it takes on this larger cosmic uh, proportion, and and again, it involves you know intense meditation, uh, intricate yogic uh, postures, the visualization of these yantras, which are kind of like a mandala that uh, represents divine female energy, mm-hmm. kind of this uh, um, geometric design that you envision in your head, um, and uh, the attempt to stay immobile and to facilitate mental processes in the prevention or delay of orgasm. Well, and and this is something we'll talk about a little bit too. This delay of orgasm, which is also um, extending the enlightenment period, right? This ecstasy. So this is when I brought up sting. I brought up this idea that you could do breath work, you could do meditation in order to um, to stave off the inevitable, yeah. so to speak, before you get the lapit mort. Um, and they're generally talking not about like imagine a race course with a start and a finish line. Um, with the finish line being orgasm. The idea is not to slam on the brakes before you get to the orgasm, but to slow things down to the point to where you're in a continuous in, state a continuous of state, ecstasy. Yeah, in a continuous state of yeah, almost crossing the line. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. In the West, Tantra really becomes synonymous with sexual debauchery. And this is where Broad, in his book, says Tantra reaches a nadir with um, an alleged cannibal sect of yogis, the Aghori, who, quote, ate the flesh of human skulls, drank urine and liquor from human souls, lived in cremation grounds and dung hills, and uh, defiled all social conventions supposedly to court public disapproval as tests of humility. And none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But I mean, <laughs> no, I mean it. The, I mean, there. Oh, you could, you know, drinking urine, drinking liquor, even drinking from human skulls. I mean, that's you see these things occur uh, in various traditions. Well, the problem is, is that India in the 1920s starts to realize that you know they have uh, a political agenda, right? They they mm-hmm. want to become independent. Um, they want to rise up. So they can't really have this whole, like, cannibalist yoga sect representing them because what's coming out of India, um, you know, one of the exports we see is this idea of yoga. Yeah. So it sort of gets this history of the sexuality, particularly, gets whitewashed because you have um, Indian nationalists like Gunang. We talked about um, this is someone who really started to try to uh, research yoga in earnest in the 1920s. And he began to distinguish Hatha Yoga from Tantra, sanitizing yoga's association with its roots in yeah, Tantra. But the, the interesting thing here is that you, you end up engaging in a duality of, oh, there's the good, there's the good yoga and then there's the bad yoga. It's like the, here's the, here's the, the, the law abiding yoga and here's the rogue yoga. But, um, and actually, when we talk about the rogue yoga, too, we're talking about something called kundalini. So when we talk about tantric yoga or tantra, mm-hmm. this is uh, one of the branches, kundalini, that is practiced today, although as far as I've never been to some sort of orgiastic class in it, I've just been, we've talked about the metaphors of the snake and the energy coiling up through the spine. Yeah. Well, um, it, it's interesting when you look into, like, why are they engaging? Uh, why would a, a tantric... Uh, um, yoga practitioner engage in the consumption of these five M's and you know what does it all get down to aside from just this you know idea of well let's use sexual sensation uh, a body sensation to uh, to you know channel the spirit um, it's this idea too that you have these things that are forbidden that are taboo right so there you're human these temptations are going to be there these things are there in your life so you can either run from them. Um, and try to deny them, or you can take them and try to do something spiritually beneficial with them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of it, taking these negatives or potential negatives and spinning them into a spiritual positive. Then so you're saying with, within the Hindu tradition that, that not one thing is entirely good or bad. Everything, everyone contains both. Yeah, because on one, on one level, again, the direction of otherwise dangerous desires into acts of devotion. And then there's this idea, too, that it awakens participants to the non-duality of the world. Okay, the idea there's this important idea in Hinduism that the world is a single, indivisible reality, uh, known as Brahman, and to see it uh, and to see the world as anything else than that, to see it as anything that's divided and composed of parts, is illusion. And you want to see through that illusion and see that and glimpse and understand, experience the reality of Brahman. So if you see the world as oh, lemonade's good and wine's bad. Uh, you know, or not, no sex is, is great and sex is bad and destructive, then you are, you're seeing a divided vision of the world and you're not glimpsing Brahman. And or, then, or even yoga, yoke, right? The yeah. union of, of yeah, these it's about, two aspects. It's about union. It's not about division. So, uh, 
I, I find that that very fascinating. No, I think it's a it's a wonderful context to talk about this. Um, we should take a break. Uh, when we get back, we're going to get down to the science of sex and yoga, mm-hmm. uh, or as I like to call it, the yoga beast with two backs. Yes. So um, go into pigeon pose, listen to this message, and when we get back, we'll continue. All right, we're back. You can come out of pigeon and uh, go back into child's pose. So let's uh, let's continue. We've, we've covered a lot of ground already, talking about uh, the um, the the roots of uh, of yoga, the the basics of Hinduism, uh, tantra, the five M's, why you should do them, um, what spiritual good they can do in the long run. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Kundalini for a second because we talked about this. We talked about Tantra, its role in Tantra, mm-hmm. this idea of the snake coiling at the base of the spine, this energy that rises up. Um, and, and actually, Kundalini um, is Sanskrit for coiled or she who is coiled. And it really is a metaphor of rebirth because of its the snake's ability to, to shed its own skin, right? And it has a high status in, in Hinduism. Um, but I wanted to mention that Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung was really intrigued by Kundalini. And he wrote of a 25-year-old woman whose symptoms included a wave of physical turmoil that rose from her perineum. Uh, mm-hmm. What you call it? The taint? Taint. Uh, to her uterus, to her bladder, and then eventually to the crown of her head. Okay, this is classic Kundalini imagery right here. And so he found it really curious that instead of her fearing um, what was happening, these physical man- manifestations, uh, she actually really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And he came to understand it, though, in terms of, of an induced psychotic state. He thought of it as, as a very destructive force. And, in fact, if you ever pick up um, or thumb through his book called The Red Book, which is a bunch of illustrations by him, mm-hmm. uh, but of his dreams, you'll see the snake in there as this sort of destroyer or this this menacing um, symbolism in his own dreams. But I wanted to bring that up because it's so close to what we've talked about before, and it's this idea of thinking off. Um, we've discussed this in the Female Orgasm podcast, it was called The Orgasm Wars. Yes. And um, we talked about this woman named Barbara Corellis, who claimed to have trained herself to climax on demand, okay, without any sort of stimulation. And uh, she's been thinking herself off for a number of years. And she actually demonstrated her ability to do this when she went into an MRI. And then she came to climax several times while researchers at Rutgers University studied her brain patterns. And they saw, indeed, that it was matching the types of brain patterns that you see in, in orgasms, people who actually have had sex with each other and undergo MRI at the same time. Seems a little awkward, but... Um, so I bring this up because William J. Broad also talks about thinking off, but he also talks about this idea that um, the same thing is sometimes happening in yoga practitioners' brains, particularly when they're meditating. And meditation and yoga, of course, go hand in hand. Yeah, and he he talks about the Ananda Marga sect, which was studied by James C. Corby. Um, this is a sect of um, yoga practitioners, and uh, they underwent this this study at Stanford University. And he had a control group of non practitioners all mm-hmm. meditate, and then the, he had the Ananda Marga sect uh, also meditating. And just so you know, Ananda Marga totally hardcore. We're talking about three and a half hour long meditation sessions daily, uh, very rigorous. So what happened is that they had the both of the groups, they had them um, relax for 20 minutes 
and then they had them uh, give some attention to their breathing for 20 minutes, and then 20 minutes uh, just for straight-up meditation. So the cool thing about this is that the control group, they show all sorts of signs of your classic relaxation, right? For instance, their blood pressure drops. But our friends over here, the um, our, our yogis, are all sorts of crazy things are happening with them. They're breathing really rapidly. They begin to sweat. What they're seeing, the researchers realize, is this autonomous arousal, very much the same sort of thing that you would see with someone who was approaching an orgasm. In fact, one of the participants had a heartbeat of 120 beats per minute, which uh, Broad says is very similar to frenzied lovers. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So there is an idea that through um, through meditation, but also through yoga, like uh, poses like cobra, uh, in which your pelvic region is on the floor, you, you place a lot of pressure there, that this is stimulating certain hormones in the body, and you begin to get this benefit of... Um, I guess you could say, I don't want to say a love cocktail of hormones surging through your body, but there, there's direct evidence that this can actually increase uh, your libido. And there, I mean, and there are certain poses too, right, that have, mm-hmm. uh, that have been shown to uh, have a, more of a link to, uh, to, the, to the sexual side of yoga, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Cobra, as I said, uh, bow pose is another one. And what's now, the- now, Cobra, for those that don't know this is one where it's like you're you're lying on your stomach yeah and you get your your hands to the side here and then you sort of the, the front of you your your torso sort of rises up like a snake yeah your hands on your sides and they're pushing your your upper torso up and yeah. so you are putting a lot of pressure in your pelvic region um but what they're also finding is that one of the hormones that is ticking up quite a bit is testosterone and uh if in men and women and in mm-hmm. fact in one study they saw a woman's testosterone uh, go up by 55% and this is incredible because heretofore they had decided that yoga was lowering men's testosterone level. And this was based on an, a study in which it wasn't um, yoga that was lowering the testosterone level. It was this vegetarian diet that the practitioners were on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had a bunch of soy in their diet and that was lowering the, lowering the testosterone. So that's sort of a myth that Broad busts here and says, no, like this testosterone can actually increase your libido as well for both men and women. So I also wanted to mention, too, that, that Broad says there's a clinical study of more than 100 men and women who self-report their sex lives before and after they undertook yoga in the study. And across the board, they all reported increased arousal, better orgasms, and more overall satisfaction. So one of the things I do want to point out uh, that Broad points out is that when they are conducting these um, these studies and this research, they are... They're very aware of creating really good, solid studies, um, at least now, in trying to study this in earnest. And what I mean by that is that they're they're looking at all the different ways in which people practice yoga and their habits. And kind of, just like any sort of study, you want to get a, a good rate of participation from people who are healthy, who... Um, you know, are, are not, you know, 24 seven yoga practitioners so that they sway the results. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're trying to get this idea, this baseline of like, okay, if average Joe walks into a yoga class, what does that mean in terms of average Joe's or average Jill's, uh, sexual proclivity, um, down the road? And so this is really interesting data that's coming from this. And then he does admit that there's not a ton of it. Again, there's not people who have said, Oh, hey, we can solve this whole, yes. uh, Viagra thing with just doing yoga. 
You know, I mean, that's not the claim that he's saying, but he is pointing to a body of mounting evidence that yoga very well could be uh, a sort of nature's Viagra. Hmm. Uh, I I also found it interesting uh, in in his book, uh, William J. Broad goes into the... uh, uh, the sexual aspects of yoga by discussing uh, various sex scandals that have arisen uh, with oh, yeah. with yoga gurus, and the main ones he was talking about are are, are some of the uh, the earlier U.S. dudes who had large followings. Generally, we're talking like guys in their fifties, sixties, and uh, and suddenly there are all these charges that they have uh, uh, behaved inappropriately with uh, young women or even not so young women under their charge. Well, and Broad's point is like fifties, sixties. I mean, yeah, okay, first of all, there's there's this whole other issue of, of power structure and taking advantage of someone. Yeah. But also, like, 50s, 60s, these dudes aren't taking Viagra. Like, there's <laughs> there's a certain vitality here that he's saying that plays into, um, you know, practicing yoga. Yeah. And and you do see, I mean, actually, there there have been recent scandals involving yoga gurus as well. But uh, uh, you, you, you can't look at it just as uh, yoga is this sexualizing thing and it just turns... Men into uh, monsters. Uh, well, there have been some female gurus yeah, too yeah. that um, there have been charges against who say that they are um, taking advantage of their position in order to to, to gain lovers and uh, sexual encounters. But I mean, even but that's mo- what that's what people that's what especially men uh, do. I mean, it's it's like the President Clinton thing uh, all over again. You put a man in a position of power. And you put these, you know, imp- impressionable young women in his charge, especially if you have a mystic uh, aspect uh, there, which is uh, largely unavoidable in a, in a yoga setting. Well, I think the problem is when your guru is saying that, you know, you should practice abstinence is not doing the same. Yeah. So that's that's really what the issue is here. Yes, yeah. People will say, well, you know, that's that's horribly hypocritical of you. But, I mean, even the Maharishi, John Lennon, said that um, the Rosemary's baby, uh, Mia Farrow, uh-huh. that... He had tried to molest her, and so they actually—that was one of the reasons why they they broke away from the Maharishi, huh. because they were like, "Dude, you're full of it." <laughs> and being full of it is is very again very in touch with uh, some of the roots of yoga, because uh, uh, as we discussed in the other podcast, you go you go back uh, in, in time and, and look at uh, look at the, the roots of yoga, and you you find a lot of. Uh, a fair amount of deception of, uh, of charlatanism at times. I mean, yeah. outrageous claims that that yoga can make you live forever, that can, it can defeat evil, it can cure diseases, things that simply aren't so within the uh, the confines of scientific reality. What I think is interesting, though, is this this again when I say this mounting evidence, this data that that yoga can inform a person's. Um, Sexual identity, even like mm-hmm. there, there are some claims of um, neo tantrics that Broad talks about. This idea that people may begin to have an alternative sexuality, where so thinking like off a, huh. becomes the norm. So it becomes kind of like an asexuality that is um, that is inward looking. I mean, oh, it's not it's even this, an asexuality. I mean, it's, it's, it's just mental masturbation, yeah. really. Huh. Uh, to I mean, that's that's really sort of taking it down to a notch that it probably doesn't deserve, but that's, well, maybe it does. But that's sort of what we're talking about here. A, a certain asexuality like about a, it. Like, more like a, a psycho-masturbation, really. Like, think of it in terms of, like... Not psycho, no, but no, psycho, no. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. There you have it. There's a nice uh, little intro into the um, into the the sexual, magical past of, uh, cannibalistic, of yoga. cannibalistic yoga past. Now, if you're if you're sitting there wondering, you're like, "Whoa, I turned turned into this uh, episode that was going to have tantra in it, and you didn't give me a single 
um, tip for tantric sex. Um, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. But you are in luck because if you go to How Stuff Works and you type in Tantra or Tantric mm-hmm. into the search bar, you will find uh, a Discovery Health article uh, written by um, the staff of Discovery Health that goes into some of the um, uh, specifics, specifics very uh, specific. of modern Tantric uh, recommendations. Like mm-hmm. they're not really telling you like how what order to eat your fish and meat and wine or any of that. Right. But uh, but some some recommendations. And they I talk about the slap and tickle. And one of them, at least, yeah. the definition of Well, so some tantric. of the things they talk about are very um, sort of straightforward, kind of more, you know, like they're, some of the tips are, are, are based in, like, bring some eroticism into your into your sex life or... Light a candle. Look into her eyes, that kind of thing, and where you're kind of like, that doesn't really seem all that mystical. That's just kind of... But, I mean, to some people, that's new information. No, so, but there, there yeah. is one that I, I believe it's the Discovery Health. Uh, if I think if you put Tantra in there, it will... It actually talks about the mechanics of it. Okay, and when yeah. uh, we were talking about um, drawing out the ecstasy part of it, that's, yeah, that gets and it gets into on. it gets into breathing, and it gets into this idea again. Yoga means yoke and union, and uh, and so when you you take these yoga uh, these, these 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 yoga principles into the bedroom, you're you're dealing with a situation of of people coming together, being aware of their their own breaths and what and their own bodies and what they're doing, uh, and then using that information to Slow things down as they approach the the precipice of uh, of, of orgasm. The jouissance. That's oh, the little death. Uh, little death. Jouissance is ecstasy too. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just being French fancy. Yeah. So uh, so look that up if you want some more information on that. Um, if you want to know more about the science of yoga, check and our and also if you want to hear more just about Julie and I's. Uh, Thoughts on yoga, and, our, and, and and I'll check out the other uh, episode that we did called The Science of Down Dog. Uh, check out the book, The Science of Yoga, by William J. Broad. It's excellent. We can't recommend that highly enough. And if you want to know a little more about Hindu tradition, there's a great book by Mark W. Muse, that's M-U-E-S-S-E, called The Hindu Traditions, A Concise Introduction. And it's just a really good, like, well-laid-out, uh, illustrated guide to generally what Hindu uh, ritual consists of. Uh, it's a great book. I highly recommend that as well. So uh, let's uh, call the robot over here. All right. A listener by the name of Peter writes in and says, Hello, Robert and Julie. I was just listening to your podcast about life and microgravity. One thing that got me thinking uh, was the off-topic comment about sourdough. How did we end up talking about sourdough and we talked. We talked about how people living off Earth would only visit us when they needed to come back and get genetic material and that we would be like the sourdough bread in San Francisco oh. that provides the, the mother dough for sour bread, sourdough bread. Okay. That was um, the analogy, at least. Well, Peter goes on. He says, a sourdough mother can be simply created by mixing flour and water in a bowl and letting natural yeasts in the atmosphere start the fermentation. As this can take a while, most breadmasters keep the original pot alive by simply adding more flour and water to the bowl once they have removed enough for the current batch of bread. Enjoying listening to your podcast as I am having to lie flat with my eyes pointed at the floor to aid my detached retina to recover. Share and enjoy, oh. Peter. Uh, who's in uh, Plymouth, UK? Yeah, I feel like I saw an article on some sort of service. Like, if you can't um, soup up your bread or feed it, someone will for you. I don't... Like they'll babysit your mother? Yeah. Mother mother bread. All right. We also heard from Zach. Zach writes in and says, Hi, I just finished listening to your Planetary Internet episode and had some thoughts on the speed of light delay, specifically in sci-fi. 
in the majority of sci-fi I have watched or read uh, that deals with interstellar travel uh, neglects interstellar communications in that they are either not a major uh, plot point or are magically instantaneous. Uh, it's an example, Ender's Game and... Uh, and then he goes on to say, one series where this is addressed, however, is Dune. In the Dune universe, a large number of communications are carried out by actual physical messengers riding on starships and delivering the message directly. These were the best examples of communication sci-fi that I could think of. With, think of, of. Thanks for the great podcast. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's you know, I'd forgotten about that detail from the Dune universe, but uh, they didn't have the means uh, to actually send the data, but mm-hmm. they had the means to send the ships, so they just include a, an actual courier uh, on board. Uh, we also heard from listener Jim. Jim writes in and says, uh, and he's referring to the Zero-G episode in Microgravity and uh, talking about movies with Zero-G in space. He says, Robert and Julie, you mentioned that 2001 was the only space movie that you knew of that maintained Zero-G. I thought of three more. 2010, a sequel to 2001, well, it's kind of obvious now, I guess, had Zero-G as well, but there are some scenes where it's not quite obvious uh, whether you're in part of the ship that's Zero-G or using rotational gravity. Apollo 13 had Zero-G for uh, historical uh, reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, They built a set on the Vomit Comet and filmed several scenes in actual Zero-G. I heard the stars say that they spent a lot of time on the ends of uh, the booms being moved around to simulate visual uh, Zero-G drift. In close-ups, they just sway back and forth. So, yeah, I kind of forgot about Apollo 13 since it's so uh, historically based. Mission to Mars uh, maintains Zero-G as well. They even fluff out the female star's hair as it would happen in Zero-G, and I legitimately forgot about that one. And then he goes on to say, I'm guessing uh, studios avoid Zero-G because it has to be very expensive and complicated to film it convincingly, assuming artificial gravity has got to solve a lot of logistical problems. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, there's a, there are a few there that I had forgotten about. Yeah, that just made me realize how surreal it must be to be an actor sometimes. Like, okay, I'm going to deliver my lines if I'm going to sway back and forth just very slightly. In front of a green screen. In front of a green screen. Talking to a puppet that's not a puppet that will be added with CGI later, but right now it's just a stick with the word alien written on it. Yeah, that I have to, in my mind, imagine this monster with vagina dentata coming at me. You know, I actually rewatched part of uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey um, last week, and it's kind of heartbreaking because, on one level, this is not this is a vision of the 21st century, but it's not the 21st century that actually happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it's beautiful and stunning, and uh, and then the other side is we don't actually make movies like this in the 21st century either. Yeah. So I I was kind of torn as to as to which was sadder, like. The scenes with the monkeys in 2001, those are the best best scenes I, I've seen in, in cinema that features monkeys. Like, And I'm counting real monkeys. Like, it's better than, uh, you know, than, than any uh, film with Clint Eastwood or, you know, anything that it featured actual acting chimps. Better than that. Better than anything I've seen with CGI monkeys. And they're the best monkey costumes ever employed in a motion picture. Like, those scenes are just fabulous. They're perfect. And, uh, and just, I mean, just the visual panache of that that film is just uh just wondrous it is it is i'm sorry it is it is uh, you just brought up the clint eastwood and now i'm imagining him in a truck going down the highway with yeah. his his uh friend they should have the just used, yeah, they should have just used one of those suits i mean it just uh, i could go on and on anyway yeah. actually there was some really good facebook discussion on this topic so. yeah yeah i brought it up on facebook yesterday and uh Anyway, if you haven't seen 2001, uh, do yourself a favor, uh, because it's great. 
anyway, we, at this that point, we should probably um, move on and close out this podcast. So. I know, and I, I just want to say namaste. Namaste, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we do have to keep talking, though. Because we, yeah, I know. We also have to point out that, hey, you can get in touch with us. You can join in on Facebook conversations with us about um, how awesome 2001 is or, or what kind of yoga you prefer. Uh, you can find us on Facebook where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can find us on Twitter where we are Blow the Mind. And and definitely, uh, we would love to hear from any of you guys that are yoga practitioners. Uh, let us know what effect it's had on your life. Um, if you are not a yoga practitioner uh, and you're trying it out or or you're, you're new to it or you're interested in giving it a go, uh, we'd love to hear from you about that topic as well. Yeah, and I also would love to know if anybody's ever had any like huge breakthroughs or revelations or even like uh, some, you know, sort of surreal thoughts in Shavasana at the end when they're resting because uh, that's a great fertile time for, for the mind. So I, I have Shavasana visions um Fairly regularly. I forget. There's a, there's actually a, a term for it, uh, for those visions, but I can't remember what they are. Yes, very cool stuff. So uh, it kind of reminds me of lucid dreaming in a way. Um, you can also send us your thoughts via email, and you can do that at blowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 